Well, thank you so much to the worship team this morning. Thank you, Sean, uh, for putting all that together. My name is Johnny. I'm trying to hit my spot here, you guys. Uh, It's nice to be with you. I am the campus pastor here at the bridge, and it is good to see your faces that I assume are smiling behind the masks. Uh, And you at home, I'm certain you're smiling. How could you not be? Uh, You're still in your pajamas, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I have a friend named Eric Idahan, and Eric is originally from Nigeria. Eric has, oh, guys, we're fancy now. We got TVs on the stage. We made it. Uh, I don't know if it's even on. We'll find out as we go. Eric uh, has been here before to our church. He's spoken. You maybe recognize that name. We uh, actually took a communion offering once for his organization, Cornerstone of Hope. But Eric was born in uh, Benin City, Nigeria. Uh, and he immigrated kind of all over the world. He went to Spain. He went to, I, I think, the Ukraine. And then eventually he won something called the uh, Immigration Lottery and was able to move here to the United States. And he moved to Des Moines. And uh, that's how I know Eric. But even though Eric lives here in Des Moines, his heart has always been uh, for the people of Nigeria. He has a deep love for his homeland. He has a deep love for the people there. And so Eric always feels uh, pulled and motivated to help those in Nigeria. And out of that pull and out of that love, God began to grow in Eric an idea uh, to care for orphans in Benin City. So the weird thing about that is uh, in Nigeria, uh, orphan care is not really considered something that individual people take Uh, part in. Uh, Orphanages are run by the state and orphan care is given to the government. And so when Eric began to talk about wanting to care for orphans and wanting to build an orphanage, people kind of looked at him like he was a little bit wacky. Uh, They were thinking, Eric, it is not your job to care for orphans. Eric, it is not your job to build an orphanage. That's not something you need to participate in. And they kind of thought he was a little wild. But Eric remained determined. And after his father passed away, uh, Eric, as the oldest son in his family, was uh, given his childhood home as his inheritance. And so Eric was able to turn his childhood home into an orphanage where he was welcoming children. He didn't want to waste his inheritance away, uh, even though that's what the people around him said, is you're wasting your inheritance by turning it into an orphanage. Eric said, no, 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 it would be a waste to not do this with it. And so Eric turned his childhood home into an orphanage. And he did that because Eric knew that God cared about those children who don't have fathers and mothers. God cared about those who didn't have a family. And Eric knew that he was called to become family to those who had no family at all. So this morning we are continuing our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And today we have come to the fruit of kindness, the fruit of kindness. And kindness, I think, can be kind of a gooey topic a little bit. I think we have a sense of what it means uh, to have kindness shown to us or, or to be kind to someone else, but I think often our uh, definition of kindness is loaded with sentimentality. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like nice, kind and nice kind of are synonyms in our minds. And so we have this idea of kindness that's full of sentimentality and kind of uh, gooey is how I would describe it. It's a little bit gooey. And as we think about kindness, I think it's fair to also ask, and it's a question that uh, I should probably know more about uh, myself in two weeks because I'm going to kill myself saying this now, uh, but if, what is the difference between kindness and goodness? 
So goodness is another fruit of the Spirit. Is there really a difference between kindness and goodness? How is kindness any different than love, which was the first fruit of the Spirit that we looked at? I started to wonder as I looked at this, did Paul just run out of words and he grabbed a thesaurus, like a Greek thesaurus, and he was just like, "We're gonna. these are the fruits of the Spirit. Like, I don't know what Paul was doing. It seems kind of fuzzy to me. Is kindness just what it means to be a good preschool teacher? And I love, my, I mean, I've had good preschool teachers teach my kids, and I'm grateful for it. But I think kindness has to be more than just being a good preschool teacher. It has to be more than sentimentality. It even has to be different than whatever goodness means. And really, we're going to find out in a couple weeks what goodness means. Maybe next week. I can't keep track. We're going to figure it out. So as much as I'm grateful for kind preschool teachers, I got this idea in my head that if we understood kindness more fully, maybe it would challenge us today to live a little bit differently. Because as I thought about kindness and I thought about our world, I came to the realization uh, that we live in a very unkind world. Kindness is on short supply. And so I hope this morning as we look at what kindness means and as we dive into the story that we're going to find in the book of Joshua, uh, we can explore a broader idea of what kindness is, and hopefully uh, it can change our hearts a little bit today. So we're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It starts with this. Then Joshua, son of Nun, not N-O-N-E. I think Joshua did have sons, but N-U-N. Son of Nun secretly sent two spies, and he said, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come tonight to spy on the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. He said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy on the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. But the truth was she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up to the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did at Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord... Your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, Rahab said, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So the book of Joshua is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a rough and tumble book. You move away from uh, the, the narrative of Moses bringing the people out of Egypt, the Exodus narrative, and then the wandering years that e- uh, the Israelites did in the wilderness, and you come to the book of Joshua. And Joshua is all about the conquest of the promised land. So God had brought Israel out of Egypt and said, I've given you a promised land. And so the book of Joshua is about what it means to now occupy the promised land. And it's rough and it's tumble and a lot of people die. It's a fun read. They could make movies out of that. Uh, But if you look really closely at Joshua, there are some stories like this one where you get this like kind of light shining through the grit and the grime a little bit. So this story picks up, like I said this morning, after the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've been following Moses. Moses has died, and now Moses has passed leadership of the Israelites on to Joshua. So Joshua is ready, and he's going to go and take the land, the promised land, so that the Israelites can have their inheritance and make their home there. But as he's preparing to cross the Jordan into the promised land, he realizes there's a little problem standing in his way, and that problem is called Jericho. Jericho is famous for having the big walls. And Joshua's looking at Jericho and realizing this is going to be kind of hard. So Joshua sends some spies into Jericho to figure out if there are any weaknesses in the defense. And the spies make their way to the home of Rahab, where the story that we read this morning all plays out. Sometimes when we read uh, the Bible, Maybe it's because of the language. Maybe it's because uh, we don't have pictures like in a comic book. Maybe it's because we just are used to the stories and so uh, we don't pay that close of attention. But sometimes when we read the Bible, it feels just a little bit flat. Um, so it's important to remember the stakes that are here in the story. The spies' very lives depend on Rahab lying for them. The spies' very lives depend on a prostitute telling a lie to the king on their behalf. That's the stakes for the spies. Those are pretty high stakes. They need Rahab. She has the power of life and death over them. And then on the other side, Rahab is risking her own life in order to protect them. Because if the king finds out that Rahab has lied, then she's going to be executed summarily. It's not even going to be a question. The stakes are extreme here. And she's also placing her faith in completely strangers, in these complete strangers, these spies. They could kill her too. There's death waiting on every doorstep. I told you Joshua's rough and tumble, man. People die. But Rahab, in this story, with all these stakes, with all this like power and drama that sometimes we don't get because in the Bible it can feel a little flat to us, but all this stake and all this drama, Rahab decides to show kindness kindness. That's how she describes it. And when she is giving her reason for being kind, it's very clear that God has been moving in her. She has heard about the power of God. She has heard the stories of the Israelites coming through the wilderness. She has heard that this God that these Israelites worship is real, and she now has believed in God. She says, surely your God is the God of heaven and of earth. She's saying, your God has all the power, and so God has been at work in the life of Rahab and prepared her for this moment. The Spirit of God has been at work, and so now in this moment, she can show kindness to the Israelite spies. And it is kindness that costs something. Kindness shown toward absolute strangers. 
She does not know if the spies are trustworthy. She does not know if the spies will show kindness in return. This is all up in the air. Choosing to be kind, choosing to save their lives from the king is costing her something in the meantime. Kindness is a risk. Kindness is a step into the unknown. So I was talking about Eric earlier, and and my wife met Eric. She was working at the Des Moines Register, and she was covering an event for her job, and she met Eric, and uh, she got to talking to him, and he started talking to her about the orphanage. And my wife and I knew that we wanted to adopt, uh, but we didn't know what that was going to look like. It was just a sense. And then she started talking to Eric about his orphanage, and soon we started having these conversations that it was very clear to us that God was doing something, that God was going to connect Eric and and his heart for orphans, and God was going to connect us and our heart for adoption, and something was going to happen. And soon we found ourselves in the adoption process for a little boy uh, who is my son, Joseph. But part of that process is we had to go to Nigeria two times. So we made the plans. We traveled to Nigeria the first time, uh, and we had a great week there. And we get on the plane to come back, and we sit down on the plane, and we're flying from Lagos, Nigeria to Amsterdam. And there's this couple that sits down on the plane. And I say to Kayla, I think that they were on uh, our flight originally f- from the United States to Nigeria. She says, yeah, I think so. They were, they, like, we recognized them. They were like our age. There wasn't a, people, a lot of people like our age on these flights. And so we thought, okay, that's interesting. So we get to Amsterdam, and we do what all good Americans do in the Amsterdam airport, and we went to McDonald's. Um, it's right up, so I can imagine it in my mind. That was a good meal. Uh, so we went to McDonald's in the Amsterdam airport, and we sit down, and oh, lo and behold, who's there? It's this couple from the plane. So we say hi, which is, oh, hey, you recognize, I mean, they recognized us. We're like, three of us were like the three whitest people in the plane, okay? So uh, we all recognized each other. We didn't think much of it. We get on the plane from Amsterdam to Detroit. Oh, there they are again. They're on this flight. We get to Detroit, find out our last flight is delayed. So me and Kayla are like, let's do some fine dining, and we go to Chili's, okay? I'm getting paid nothing for these product drops, Sherry, um, but I'm doing them anyway. It's important, the details. So we go to Chili's, who is at Chili's? This couple. We find out their names are Ugo and Amy. Ugo was born in Nigeria. He came to the United States for college. He met this nice girl named Amy. They got married. Uh, they're beautiful, wonderful people. And, uh, and they're going to move back to Nigeria for like a year or two years or something like that uh, to do some things. And they were there figuring out what their living situation was going to look like while they were there. It was a great conversation. We just kind of connected about all that. The end. When the time came for us to travel back to Nigeria uh, for, to finalize our adoption, so our second and final trip, we sent an email to Ugo and Amy just to say, hey, we're coming back to Nigeria. You live in Nigeria. It's a small country. It's not. Uh, but, you know, maybe we could, you know, hang out. And it turned out that Ugo and Amy lived just a few blocks from the U.S. consulate where we were going to have to spend a whole lot of time working out visa stuff for our son Joseph. Outside of a a few flights together, an awkward hello at an airport McDonald's and a quick meal at Chili's, Ugo and Amy did not know us at all. They knew that we were Christians and and they were Christians and they knew our story of adopting and we knew their story of uh, moving back for a few years to Nigeria. But other than that, we were total strangers. And yet, as we planned our final trip to Nigeria, a trip that ended up taking nearly three months to complete, they offered us their home, 
They let us stay with them for free. They offered us the use of their car and their driver, which, thank God, because I would never have been able to navigate in Lagos, Nigeria. It was not going to happen. We had a driver. We had a car. We had their home. They shared their resources with us. And when I had to leave, I had to go home before Kayla did, uh, and she was there in Nigeria. They took care of her. They took her out to ice cream. They, they were her family while she was there. We literally could not have adopted our son Joseph without Ugo and Amy. We did not have the resources for all of the things that it would have cost us to stay in Nigeria for three months. And yet Ugo and Amy, complete strangers, were willing to take us in and treat us with kindness. And they treated us like family. So there's an author named Amy Peterson, and she wrote a book called Where Goodness Still Grows. Uh, Sherry, it's not Walter Brueggemann, so you don't have to say that today. Um, There it was. And Amy writes about the various virtues uh, that we can carry around. And the second virtue that she writes about is kindness. Kindness. And in her research, she realized that the word kindness in English comes from the word kin or family. In Middle English, there actually was not a distinction between the words. To be kind was to be kin. To be kin was to be kind. And so kindness at its core in our language means to act like family. And Peterson goes on to describe how seeing kindness as kinship changes and pushes us beyond sentimentality and towards something deeper. My friend Eric does not just give orphans meals and a roof and a a place to stay. What he does is when a child comes into the orphanage, a child who has no name because they have no family, he gives them his father's name as their last name. He gives them a family name, and he brings them in to his family. Kindness for Eric means kinship. Rahab cared for those spies like they were her family. Generally, we don't think kindness requires us to risk our lives and lie to the authorities, but for Rahab, that's what kindness was asking her to do because that's what we would do for our kin. She treated them like they belonged to her. Ugo and Amy, our friends, brought us into their home. They cared for us. They provided for us. Their kindness looked like kinship. They treated us the same way that they would have treated their own family. And if we read further into the book of Joshua, we see that the kindness of Rahab was reciprocated back to her. When Jericho fell, Rahab and her family were saved. And not only were they saved, but we're told that Rahab and her family made their home among the Israelites. They became kin with the Israelites. I think it's in chapter 6. It actually says Rahab and her family are still with us to this day. And what uh, the, the people who wrote that book were not alive at the same time as Rahab. So what they were saying is the descendants of Rahab are still part of Israel to this day. And if you read the Bible, you find out that Rahab got married to a man from Judah. We're getting weird now, guys. But Rahab gets married to this guy named Judah, and they have a baby, and the baby's name is Boaz. You're like, I've heard that name before. You have, because Boaz goes on to play a big role in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a woman whose kin all die. And yet she chooses to be kin to her mother-in-law and go to a strange land in a strange place and show kindness to her mother-in-law. But when they get there, they're so poor that they need kindness shown to them. And so Boaz shows up, the son of Rahab, and says, I will show kindness to you. And the ultimate kindness that he shows is he actually becomes what is called, guys, I couldn't make this up if I wanted to, a kinsman 
Redeemer, kin. He says, we, you and I, are family now. And the story of Rahab leads into the story of Boaz, leads into the story of Ruth. And if you keep going and going, you get to Matthew chapter 1, and you start reading this genealogy, and then all of a sudden you notice these names because Rahab gives birth to Boaz who marries Ruth, and they got a whole bunch of kids. And those kids have kids, have kids, have kids. And then one day, there's a baby born named Joseph. And Joseph will go on to show kindness to his fiancée when she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant even though we have never consummated our marriage. And in that moment, Joseph has a decision. He can show kindness, he can be kin, or he can do what he has every legal right to do and he can walk away. See, the kindness flows and flows and flows all the way to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And in Jesus, God shows the kindness of God to all of humanity. In the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, now kinship has flown out onto the whole world. And God says, I will make you all sons and daughters. All those who come to me become part of the family of God. Kindness, kinship, and family comes flowing out of the cross. This is the ultimate end of God's kindness, that we are made sons and daughters of God, that we are adopted into God's family. Writing about this, Amy Peterson wrote, to be kind means to be kin. The word unfolded in my mind. God's kindness meant precisely that God became my kin, Jesus, my brother. And this was a foundational truth about who I was. At our foundation, we become part of the family of God. On the cross, Jesus makes a way not just for us to be forgiven, not just for us to get to heaven, but to become part of the family. Kinship and kindness intertwined. And as I thought about that this week, what happened to me uh, is the same thing that usually happens. I started to feel very convicted. Um, because I don't think I've been very kind. Two weeks ago, I told you I was a fraud because I didn't have peace. Now I'll tell you I'm a fraud because I'm not kind. And at some point, you're going to fire me and find a pastor who can do these things, okay? Uh, but I don't feel like I've been very kind. Maybe not out loud I haven't been unkind, but in my heart, certainly I have been very unkind. As I got to thinking about this, I thought, what does it require of me to be kind to be kin to those around me. So here's my challenge to myself, and you're all invited into it with me today. I think that there are times where we have to stand up and we have to say, this is wrong, that's wrong, we got to call things out. Jesus did that. Jesus was deeply unkind to the Pharisees as a group. But when the Pharisees came to Jesus to talk and have one-on-one -on -one conversations, all we find is kindness, kindness, kindness. Jesus treating them as his kin. And so my challenge to myself and to all of us today is how will we be in our heart and toward others in the coming week? 
Will we continue to hold ourselves back from others to build a barrier that says, I can't, uh, that person just annoys me too much, it's too crazy, I can't. Some of us are going back to our workplaces, and maybe you've got that coworker that you've been like, I've been glad that I've been working at home, and now I've got to go back. Somebody's laughing. We know this feeling, right? All of my coworkers feel that about me. So kindness, how can we be kind? And in that, this is my biggest, I feel so silly saying this, guys, but the world is telling us to not be kind. And there are times where we got to say something is wrong. There's times where we got to call things out. But I don't know that there's ever a time where me and you having a one-on-one conversation, me and you and my, even my heart conversations about you, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, The book of Galatians is pretty clear. The Bible is pretty clear. What flows out of us is kinship and kindness. So for me this week, for you this week, let's choose into that spirit-led kindness toward others, even when we don't, especially when we don't feel like it. Because that is what Jesus did for us, and it becomes part now of our identity and how we relate to the world around us. Let's pray. God, if, if you don't demonstrate kindness to us, then we're not standing here today. God, if, if you don't call us sons and daughters, then what are we? If you don't make a way, God, then how in the world are we supposed to get through this life and this world? It's impossible. And so, God, I, I pray that you would wash over me with your spirit that you would douse me and drench me and wash away that unkindness that I carry. That attitude that lays latent within me that says, uh, I don't have to deal with that person, that person is too, I don't want to have that conversation, this person is that, this, but God, wash that away and give me the same eyes for the world that you have as you call us your sons and daughters. God, I pray that we would uh, know the riskiness of kindness. That when we, when we move out in that direction, God, we go out on that limb, uh, who knows what's going to happen out there. I pray that we would move beyond sentimentality and into a, a full understanding of what it costs to be kind to others. And how sometimes even being kind to others will lead other people to not be kind to us. God, I love to look out, point out faults in others, but this week, God, show me the faults in me. Make me less worried about the unkindness of others and more worried about the unkindness in my own heart. God, we believe that through your spirit, we can achieve a type of kindness that's impossible for us on our own. Thank you, God, for the story of Rahab, the story of Boaz, the story of Joseph these stories where we find you over and over and over. We love you, God, and we know that you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen.